What does it take to win? Hosted by track record founders David Carey and Scott Gardner. Ready again. Transforming your track record with leadership coaching. Inspired by elite performance from sports and business. On your arms. Side track from leading performers in sports and business to find out what does it take to win. Hello and welcome to the Track Record Podcast. Each podcast we ask ourselves the question, what does it take to win? And we're going to do that today on this podcast like every other. Um, and we've got a very special guest today. Scott, who have we got? David, today we've got Hannah McLeod. Uh, Hannah, GB hockey forward. Um, superstar in the world of hockey, uh, bronze medalist in London, went on to a gold medal. Can we give a little round of applause? Oh, very good. A little round of applause for Hannah. Gold medal in Rio. And um, welcome, Hannah. Thank you very much. I'm going to launch straight into this before you do any introductions, David. And I'm just going to say, Hannah, did you ever think about picking up a stick to go to Tokyo and just get a silver medal, just to complete the box set. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. No. Um, I, the, the final moment, um, winning gold, um, surrounded by some of your absolute closest friends. On that pitch, we were laughing, we were crying. It was absolute disbelief. But your overriding emotion is literally, I want to do it again. And it's it was so strange, never expected it. It was right, we know how to win now, let's just keep doing it. And then give it a few weeks later and you, you reflect on actually how much it takes to get to that point. Oh, and I was, wow. just didn't have the energy anymore, mentally um, as well as physically. So I had to yeah take the decision to bow out on, on gold. So no box set. <laughs> no box set, I'm happy with that. Just very stolen Mahiki medal. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a perfect segue because that's exactly what we want to find out a little bit more about today. You know, that, that what did it take to win? What enabled you guys to be able to stand in Rio on that podium to, to have that kind of collective sense of why we did it? Um, so we'd love to be able to explore a little bit more about that. But but we're a little bit different here on this podcast. We, we don't just do the interview stuff, but we'd really like to kind of take a coaching approach and, and see what you've learned and uh, perhaps even um, help our listeners really identify how they can apply some of the things that, that you've learned through your career. And perhaps you might even um, be able to apply some of the things that uh, in your next career as well. Um, and so that, that first question is, is such a a big, open, obvious one. What did it take for you guys to be able to stand on that hockey field and, and become the very best in the world at that moment in time? For us, it started with our head coach, Danny Kerry, pretty much saying uh, we're never going to be skillful enough to, to win an Olympic medal. Uh, I mean, as, a, as an elite athlete, I've got a, an ego that's quite <laughs> offensive. But fundamentally, it was, it was true. We don't pick up a stick early enough um, to be able to compete with the likes of Holland, Argentina, where it's really embedded in their culture and they are far more skillful. So as a group of individuals, um, we were never going to make up for the shortfall in our level of skill in that short period of time. We At that point, that was 2009. So we had three years to win an Olympic medal, otherwise we'd potentially lose all our funding. So um, to give us the best possible chance of winning, we had to become the best team in the world. And that was an incredible um, point because 
ultimately that's what we ended up becoming mm. so it took seven years it's certainly not a, a quick process but everything from 2009 when we had an increase in funding all the way through the london olympics through to the rio olympics it was around what are the what will enable us to be the best team in the world mm-hmm. and ultimately in the final if you watched it mm-hmm. we got completely outplayed absolutely destroyed for the whole game but we stuck to process we had absolute clarity of our roles and we had absolute confidence in delivering what would give us still the best possible chance of winning mm. and ultimately um it worked out pretty well in the end wow so being a team was your kind of secret sauce if you like which seems such, such like an, an obvious thing to to do and not only that but your 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 head coach started on a negative we're never going to be good enough to beat them on skill so we're going to have to be a team what what were the elements of that team that you can point to that 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 kind of shone out for me, I mean, don't get me wrong, we had some phenomenally skillful individuals. We had some absolute world-class yeah, players. I'm wondering but... what your teammates are thinking yeah. right now. <laughs> no. I, I completely <laughs> But across the board, I mean, yes, we've got world beaters, but we don't have a, a team full of world beaters, unlike you know Holland and Argentina, who were the benchmark. And for us, I firmly believe that it was actually absolute clarity in your role for the team. And having the confidence that the coaches support you in delivering that role and all your teammates respect you for that role that you're you're delivering and essentially all that's required of you is to do what you do in training every single day so rather than going into olympic final going this is the biggest game in the world i need to perform to the best of my ability i need to do something special because it's an olympic final it's actually you step on the pitch and go, I just need to do what I've always done. And that is incredible. So it was so process-driven. Everyone was so focused on just, oh, it's another game. And it was it was strange going to bed the night before because we've been, we kind of tried to downplay the fact that we hadn't lost any matches. We had this wonderful mem- momentum in the tournament. It's very rare that you go through unbeaten um, because you can afford to lose or draw a pool match. And you... And it was just like, oh, just just another game then. Just got to do my job again. Okay. Mm. Um, obviously, there was a bit of excitement, but um, when you came to the the penalties at the end, Holly Webb, who mm. had to step up and score to to win the Olympic gold medal for us, if she stood on that twenty five yard line and went, oh my, I can if I score this, I'm going to be asked to go on. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. Like, I'm going to win it for the team. There's no way in hell she would have yeah. given herself the best chance of scoring that. And actually, she did exactly what I've seen her do in training over and over again. Dribbled up to the top of the D, went slightly to the left, turned her back, dummy to go right, spun left, lifted the ball a little bit as she pushed it a goal. And I was so proud of her because that's what I'd seen in training and that's what she focused on. And then there's this little delay and then she suddenly realises what's just happened. Mm. And that's that was amazing. Yeah. And I just got tingles. Oh, it's just, I mean, it's almost uh, hearing that, you know, you were on that halfway line watching those penalties going in and your team has become almost this kind of mythical example of being able to maximise the potential that you guys had within that team uh, and demonstrating that it, it is that team 
element that can trump individual performers. Uh, and we see this in business all the time, this kind of idea that if you add the sum of the parts, it's often not equal to those parts, uh, and actually sometimes less as well. Uh, and one of the things that, that we've done is, is start to, to measure confidence within organizations uh, and within people. And so often we see actually that, that individual confidence, so the confidence that somebody has in themselves, actually reduces when they step on to their equivalent of the pitch. And their confidence within the team is, is less than that. So there's actually a, a step down in terms of confidence. It sounds like you guys almost kind of increased your confidence as you stepped into the team. We did a lot around um, just really understanding your role, but also communicating that. I mean, I'm a striker. I've never scored a goal in the Olympics. And Shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> I know. And still one. <laughs> still one. But if I measured my own performance based on, on that, I would really question whether or not I should be going to Olympic Games or indeed playing international hockey because my title is a striker uh, and by definition... I should, in theory, be scoring goals. Strike it. Strike it, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But actually, my role largely was to get the ball, give it to Lily, Sophie and Alex. Or it was to create space in the middle of the pitch for Kate Rich and Walsh at the back to pass to Lily, Sophie and Alex, mm. who are far more skillful. And for, you want them shooting, not me. Yeah. But my role was essential to help them score goals. So as soon as I started to doubt my ability or my confidence there would always be a teammate that would say actually no this is the role that you play this is really vital for us it's a kind of piece of the jigsaw if I started trying to dribble around everyone and scoring goals I'm not going to be as successful and nor is the team mm. and it took a long time to get to that point but it really was the um, the shift that I needed because I'm not a naturally confident individual and I really suffered at the start of my career until I discovered this piece of work and there's now been quite a lot of research is around super strengths mm -hmm. um, and a PhD student uh, kind of used our, our squad um, to, to kind of develop um, some kind of theory around it but it was absolutely fundamental. Mm. That, that super strength and being able to identify what it was that you offered the team and that team that the team actually appreciated and respected that that role that you played. And that's a crucial bit. It's sharing it mm. so that you have um, confidence in that your team around you value you as an individual um, and the skill sets that you bring. And that is that's a really important bit because it then becomes irrelevant as to what your title is, whether you're the captain, you're the leader, you're the star striker, you're the one that's getting more money. Um, I'm and still valued and I need to do certain things that the team sees in me that I'm already good at and I need to deliver that every single day. Mm. Um, and that's uh, that's just an incredible place to be. Yeah. So 2009 was when this kind of uh, the challenge was, was set. You in 2012, you got a bronze medal and gold medal in Rio four years later. Was it a straight line? Oh my, absolutely not. We, I think we really struggled as a result of um, the type of goal that we set going into London. So from 2009 was the first time that we went centralised. So it's the first time we had 30 players that were full time. It was a result of us hosting 
the Olympics in London 2012. We were seen as a potential um, medal-winning team sport. We were ranked seventh in the world, but because football hadn't got their act together as to how to compete as Great Britain, hockey was kind of the next mm -hmm. team sport and to... Um, to kind of inspire a certain demographic, so young people that are interested in team sports, it's really important that we are winning Olympic medals. Yeah. Um, so 2009, increase in funding, 30 individuals coming together, starting from scratch, right, how are we going to get a medal? And we set our goal as winning gold mm -hmm. in London. And everything we talked about, it was the way we communicated in training, the way we communicated externally to the media was around winning gold gold mentality everything was focused on gold and we came away with bronze and it was seen as failure internally and externally even though it was the first olympic medal we'd won in 20 years and we'd come from seventh in the world we weren't probably the third best team there we really benefited from a home olympics and a few other results going our way so we probably exceeded our potential and bronze was a massive success with what we achieved with that group of players i can honestly look back at those three years and go we could not have done any more it was a really tough three years so how on earth can that be failure and typically if you review performance and you come away with believing that it's failure then we decided to change a lot of things mm. And we'd really lost sight of actually all the good things that had got us to that point. Two years later, we came 11th out of 12th at the World Cup. Um, massive expectations for the sake of our funding. We needed to win a medal. And it was an absolute horror show. But it had been coming. Mm. There were many signs that that performance was, was going to happen. And sure enough, there it was. And it was the lowest point of probably my life and my career. Very nearly walked away from the sport because I didn't I didn't understand and believe in what we were doing. 18 months later, we've won Olympic gold. And what it boiled down to was largely just the tiniest of things. And it was, does everyone really understand their role? Um, do we, What's our level of trust and respect amongst the team? People were turning up late for meetings um, and you start to second guess as to why they're late. Well, it's because they don't respect me. So that starts to kind of snowball. People not wearing the right kit. It's like, well, are you part of this team or you're not? Mm -hmm. um, and it just, all these small behaviours really add up within um, a performance environment where there's a lot of stress and a lot of pressure. And it culminated in um, our performances on the pitch absolutely kind of falling away dramatically and two days of kind of facilitated discussions and we had an external um, psychologist come in and basically sit everyone in a room and go right let's get to the bottom of this and in a very short space of time instantly our performances were turned around and it just came down to behaviors the same people absolutely same people but once you've cleaned up the culture um, you invest in understanding what your purpose is, what your values are, and then ultimately you discuss the behaviours that go that need to be seen on a day-to-day -day basis. If you've given time to the, discuss that and there's a degree of ownership over it, you can then hold each other accountable. And that was fundamental in um, kind of reshaping the direction of that group of individuals. Isn't it incredible? 
just coming down to turning up on time for meetings, wearing the right kit. It is. It, we, we hear it time and time again uh, in these great teams that the expectations are are incredibly high, and often people think the expectations are you've got to win a medal or you've got to perform some outrageous overhead kick uh, in a World Cup final. And actually, when you start to dig down, Alex Ferguson was a great example of it. That the expectations that he had was actually clean boots. Um, and turning up to the games looking smart and dressed well and, you know, not going out at night and being photographed stumbling out of bars and clubs and things like that. That was the expectations that he had. And it sounds like a, a very similar kind of mentality that you guys developed. And I think what was crucial with us is that we had a degree of ownership over it. So it wasn't management or head coach saying, this is what you've got to do. There'd be a nudge if... We were off track, um, but because we had a degree of ownership over it, what was fundamental was that we were given time to discuss it and talk about it. So we were taken off a pitch and put in a meeting room, which for a team sport where you have relatively little time training anyway, um, that was massive, but absolutely, absolutely fundamental, um, particularly when you've got 30 girls giving them time to talk um, <laughs> on paper you'd be like no yeah. um, but um, it, it literally allowed us to discuss the day-to-day behaviours and when you take it out of context it sounds so straightforward and um, just a little bit too obvious but we've all know those individuals who constantly turn up late for meetings or never contribute in a meeting, but then they're more than happy to voice their opinion outside the meeting. And that's just not acceptable. So once you kind of effectively clean up the environment and you stop second-guessing behaviours, it's a, it's a much better culture to operate in. Mm. And what was the role of the leader of the team? And, and the leader of the team would be seen as the head coach, Danny. How How did he instigate or lead the team through this process through that disappointment through the obvious kind of searching and imagine he would have had as a leader as well but what were the things that he enabled and led for this team to come through that that phase he very much drove the the processes through which the team had to kind of progress through so first and foremost it was why are we here I mean, you're assuming that everyone wants to win a gold medal, but you've got 30 players, 16 go to Olympic Games. Some know that they're there maybe for the next cycle, Olympic cycle. Some know that they're never really going to quite make it. They're relying on three people to get injured before they've got to look in. So actually, what are we about? And he then handed that over to us in terms of establishing what what our purpose was. And it had to be as a result of London, not simply an outcome goal. Um, The next kind of phase was then understanding individual roles um, and responsibilities for the team and just ensuring that we had absolute clarity. And we owned our own confidence. It didn't come from the coaches and the head coach. Um, So... He the, at no point was there anything put on us. It was mm. right. The, he knew full well the processes that we had to go through. He gave us the time to work through those, and just creating our visions and our values took fourteen hours of meetings. 
Mm. So he had the trust of the group and he had a leadership group within the players, yeah. um, players group, which was the link to him. Yeah. But he would only step in if, if he kind of really thought that we were either taking too long or we were just going around in circles. Yeah. So, so his role, therefore, was not to see what the purpose was, but actually to ask the question. Yeah, the purpose has to be owned by the group, has to be owned by the people that are going to be delivering it. Mm. So he he knew full well where he wanted to get to. <laughs> um, if we'd all said, no, absolutely, it's got to be about gold, then possibly he might have tried to nudge the conversation yeah. in a slightly different way or he would have given us more time or he would have opened our eyes to certain um, situations that had happened in the past, just as yeah. a bit of a gentle reminder. But it wasn't to say, right, here you go, slide a bit of paper over the desk and yeah. this is your purpose, this is, these are your values, these are your behaviours, Yeah, off you go. And, and, and what about the, the rules as well, the clarity of the rules? Presumably he would have had an opinion in terms of the players that were here, the competitors that were up against and what he thought the best solution was. And yet, was he then asking the question to the players as well, what rules do you see or, or how, how did that... How did that kind of manifest itself? It's a two-way process. So f the first step was for the player to say, right, this is what I think I'm really good at. This is how I think it fits in with how we play. And then you you have that conversation with the coach. And, and um, in this case, Danny would either say, actually, we need you to do a little bit more of this or a bit less of that. So the, you would come to then an agreement and that was what you kind of expected to kind mm. of focus on in training. But that's at the performance end. There'll be a training phase where you can explore working on your weaknesses. But when it comes closer to a tournament or certainly at a tournament, then it's all around what you're great at and therefore kind of what you've agreed you're going to deliver. And there was an amazing conversation we had as a team where we just reconnected with our strengths and kind of went around the went around the group and had to say what it is we're great at and what we're going to deliver for the team, which for a lot of people is actually a really uncomfortable process. Mm. Um, we'd had quite a bit of practice, but one individual kind of stood up and said something along the lines of, I'm, I'm a game changer. And I was like, wow, okay, yeah. Um, and she absolutely was. She has the capability of changing a game. But she'd got to a point where that's all she was trying to do and her performances were really suffering. And mm. she was going to the Olympics, but there was a lot of concerns around her form. And in the space of that conversation and the, her teammates turning around going, yes, you, we absolutely know you can do that, but we also expect you and see your strengths in these other areas. All of a sudden, she kind of went, oh, I'd, she'd totally lost track of actually what else she was good at and just what the team expects of her that she was not delivering. And her form just literally changed. Wow. Um, it was an amazing moment, incredible conversation. But if she hadn't stood up there and just said, you know, this is what I think I'm great at. And the team having confidence to say, actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah. may I suggest something else as well? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was, yeah. And, and it sounds like it was more than a suggestion as well. It, it, you were use the word expect. You know, this is what I expect from you beyond just changing a game. Uh, and, and you used the the word ex, uh, expectations before. 
And we've seen it um, in quite a lot of the, the studies that we look at that in order for truly extraordinary performances to happen, you need an incredibly high level of performance expectations. But actually, it has to be met and matched with that feeling of individual support so that the player has to feel like they are able to be supported to, to reach those expectations as well. So beyond the expectations, how did you guys support each other? What was the support network that allowed one player to have an off day, allowed you know the, those dips and those searching of confidence, which of course is going to happen through a, a seven-year period? Yeah, I think it, fundamentally it, it was actually delivering on the behaviours that we had talked about in terms of what do we want to see from every single person on a day-to-day basis. And if you can stick to that, then, uh, yeah, they undoubtedly form form changes and people go through stuff. Mm. <laughs> so all the stuff that happens in, in your life, you, there's, yes, there's a degree of expectation that you leave that at the gate, but it's very difficult over you know the amount of time we spend together so there's got to be that kind of some allowances but it's little things like if I'm having a conversation with you and it's um I'm delivering some quite honest feedback should we say if you don't look me in the eye then we've we've got a problem mm. so if you're just looking at the ground going yeah yeah, yeah or whatever that that erodes our trust and our respect so absolutely, you've got to look me in the eye and we're going to have this conversation. Poor She's behavior. good at that, by the way. She's doing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> can tell, can hear it. <laughs> um, work rate, something, no matter how bad you're feeling or how um, poor you're playing, you can always work hard. So the the expectations of your teammates may shift a little bit to more the fundamental behaviors that we expect you know regardless of everything else so i'd say that's there's issues if you're not delivering on those but you the behaviors that we outline are, are all things that are well within your control regardless of of form um or confidence to a large extent we've heard a lot about your hockey life that's now behind you. You've moved on. You've retired. And we were just having a conversation outside when you had to fill out a form. And, and uh, one of the things was occupation. What do you fill in now? I still struggle with it. Yeah, I struggle with it. Uh, it's taken me a long time to actually figure out um, why I uh, decided to be, try and become um, an Olympic gold medalist what what is the passion that drives that um because when i walk away from playing i need to fill that with something mm. my um education and my qualifications are all around kind of exercise physiology and i'm a sports scientist um but that's a career path that i chose at 18 and but what made me kind of go down that route was actually because I was fascinated by performance and I always wanted to just learn more around how could I be better and it took me a while then to understand that actually I could be fitter I could be stronger I can invest all this in my kind of my physiology but 
that wasn't limiting my performance at that stage when I was 19, 20, 21. It was more my head. Mm. <laughs> and uh, so that led me down a different path. And working with Andrea first, who was a psychologist that came into our team around about 2014, really opened my eyes to the kind of cultural piece alongside Danny Kerry, our head coach, who really fundamentally believed in that. And that became my fascination in terms of how do you create an environment where people can learn and perform at their best. And having seen that and experienced when things go wrong, um, I found myself most days thinking constantly about the environment, the behaviours, how people work together. And I had to, when I finished, that was my passion. It was mm. all around making and helping people perform better. It wasn't around textbooks, knowledge, right and wrong. Um, it was actually around speaking to people, listening to people, trying to kind of piece things together and um, extract more from those around you. So I've been on a huge journey and now I find myself in a, a really privileged position where I've had clarity as to what motivates me, what I'm passionate about, what makes me feel uncomfortable at times because I absolutely crave that. I'm like on the edge of, can I do this? And it's the same feeling in hockey. Sometimes is that those nerves, it's, you're not quite sure what's going to happen. It's not, I'm in a lab and I know what's going to happen. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I get to work with lots of different organisations, with different people. I also still coach hockey. So I'm involved with the GB under 23s, which is, is again, it's about people mm. and helping improve performance. And whether that's collectively in teams, um, through a collaborative process or individually, it's just fascinating. And that's my passion now. So I'm intrigued because the it sounds like when you were part of that hockey team, you were in the team and, and you were kind of almost kind of doing the the dirty work, the unseen work, the, the unglamorous work, being able to kind of get the ball back and pass it on to the strikers so that they can uh, take all the glory. <laughs> but you were in the team. And now that what you're doing is, is supporting people to be able to kind of be at their best, but you're not in the team. So how can you, what is it that you do to support others to maximize their potential? My role within the hockey team was actually, it was almost like the, the critical friend. So I, we would, we had Kate Richardson while she was our captain and been captain for 13 years, phenomenal leader. And then we had a leadership group with players who had voted in by the squad and they would have a different level of playing experience, but they were the link between the different age groups within the team and different levels of experience. And I always opted out of that vote. So I never wanted to be in that leadership team because I wanted to um, be able to understand and express the views of kind of everyone else and just be able to challenge that group. And it was not a deliberate decision. It just felt comfortable to me. And I found myself that person that would always call out the elephant in the room and kind of pose the slightly very difficult questions at times. And it got me into trouble without a shadow of a doubt. But I knew it was actually valued by the team. Because when I stopped doing it, because I thought, oh, I'm so fed up of being that person, that we actually started to have a few more problems. So 
now that I'm out of that environment, I still find myself being that almost that critical friend. Mm. Um, so it's the same role. It's just I get to listen and I just get to probe and ask questions and seek clarity and just kind of try. It's that curious mind. It's not a, I'm telling you how it's done and this is how I think based on my experiences. Absolutely not. Uh, so it's, just, as I said, very similar role and it's, it's curiosity. It's asking questions. Um, and stepping into that that business world, what surprised you the most? What surprised me the most has been uh, two things. First, that everyone has the same problems. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly you can be extremely profitable and seen as very successful on the outside but do a lot of things really poorly so there's companies where i i think oh they must have a lot of great stuff going on but when you speak to the people um you're just amazed at actually how they survive in that environment um first and foremost so they're Definitely the two most mm -hmm. interesting things. So everybody has the same problems and, you know, that that that, uh, that gap between perceived success and actually getting under the skin of the business and, and realising that there's a bit of a gap between perception and reality. What problems do people have? From my experience, it's a lack of clarity as to their purpose. So they'll have a, a, a vision statement Um or they'll have a slogan plastered across the wall mm -hmm. um, or a section on their website that states their values. But within that, within different teams within the business, they don't have a real clarity of purpose or an understanding of kind of what pulls them all together. Um, so that's absolutely fundamental mm -hmm. and essential. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, it's how to... I term it performance conversations, but it's being pretty kind of straightforward and providing feedback on a regular basis. So it becomes little and often, it becomes a habit. It's good practice in terms of, we know from a, in the world of education and learning, feedback completes the learning loop. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it, it, but within business, we, we quite often avoid it at all costs or we have a yearly or quarterly review that becomes a tick box exercise and everyone's fearful of it so it's those courageous conversations it's um just helping people become better mm. <laughs> collectively so um there's always a piece around around feedback and then there's a massive area around um emotional intelligence and self-awareness in sports you know, everything's filmed, everything's videoed, and we all sit in meetings and watch back kind of our behaviours on a pitch mm. or our actions, and it becomes a very normal process. And we work very hard at having honest conversations. So you have absolute clarity as to how you're perceived, how your mood affects the people around you, how you are expected to ensure that you are looking after yourself to deliver for the team. It's not 
leave everything to chance. If I wake up in a bad mood, then I'm just going to stay like that and just absolutely have toxic conversations all day. It's just unacceptable in that sporting world. If you take that into business, it's exactly the same. So you have a, a responsibility to perform at your best, and that means being in a an emotionally in a good place. Mm-hmm. Um, it means having and not avoiding honest, open, performance-based conversations, um, and having a really good sense of yourself, and therefore a good sense of the individuals around you. Mm. Uh, and. Is there anything in business that um, that you have seen as completely different that that doesn't solve for the the kind of the, the challenges and the experiences that you've encountered in in elite sport? Is there anything that actually doesn't apply? Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. the The biggest difference is the level of motivation to change, and the level of commitment to change. You obviously have um, individuals who have been extremely successful for many, many years and their desire to change or their urgency to change is just not there. In in sports, you'd either not win or you would um, be thrown out of the team if that was your attitude. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the biggest challenge. Um, and also this kind of shift in... Um, you'll call it whether you want to call it Gen Y or um, millennials, um, a very different way of seeing the world within sport. You typically have kind of one, maybe two generations of mm. <laughs> of people. So dealing with that mm-hmm. has been has been interesting. But the principles around just respecting differences is is very much core to that rather than categorizing a whole group of people and then um thinking or making judgments yeah so um but in terms of helping and supporting performance it's very very similar yeah and and what is it that you do to to maintain that uh, presumably level of discipline level of um, performance rigor that you had in the environment that you were, you know, in the Team GB and all that kind of stuff. It's pretty relentless and it's expected in that world. You're now not in that world. How how do you maintain that same rigor and discipline to to keep moving forward and improve and developing for you? It's a good question. I will always seek feedback and that I found has been relatively unusual and people are generally quite uncomfortable and I keep I will stress that it be honest as you like you can send it anonymously whatever whatever works for you at this stage but I need that feedback and I will reflect whether it's good whether it's bad but that's what I'm used to mm-hmm. that's what I know will enable me to continue to progress and at no point will I ever hit a point where I know everything. I mean, it's, it's absolutely impossible. So you're always trying to be better, to um, to push yourself. Mm. Otherwise, I get bored and yeah. I just, it, it, what, what's the point? So uh, for me, feedback is essential. And then that whole kind of reflection piece around 
at the end of the day, I'll always just write some notes down as to what I've learnt, what I might do differently next time. Those behaviours haven't left me, and I mm. think that's that that's definitely come from my sporting background. Yeah. Have you found yourself changing or adapting coming out of sport? Oh. Um... You adapt to any environment you're working in to some extent. I have very strong opinions <laughs> as to how I believe things should be done. Um, I will always be quite straightforward and quite candid in the way that I work. But I've learned within sport that that does need to be tempered at times. Mm. Um, so I've got better at gauging the audience. But I don't. I don't know. Is the honest answer. I, I don't know how much I've changed. Mm. I'd say I've probably matured a little bit. You know, I don't run around after a little white ball with a bent stick all day. <laughs> I've got a. You know, I can't just wear a tracksuit. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a degree of social norms that I've had to adhere <laughs> to. Yeah. But beyond that, I'm not sure. Yeah. Scott, you've been scribbling a whole bunch of notes down there, and I'd be really interested to to hear from you. What what are the standout moments uh, and things that that Hannah Hannah's spoken about? Wow, I, I can't even read my notes now, but because <laughs> I could do an hour summary, which would be longer than you the, what you've spoken to us on the key points that are are coming out of the conversation. It's so rich, it's so dense in in ways to apply your experiences in hockey and out of hockey, coming out of hockey, to what we see. Number one, everyone's the same. Everyone is the same. They have the same problems. They deal with these things. And it is how we deal with them as people, how, um, as you've said, we take ownership and we engage in co-creation, how we understand ourselves. I, the fascinating, you described yourself early on in the conversation as someone who's not high in confidence, yet someone who's not high in confidence is constantly seeking feedback. And that gives a, me this whole, there's obviously a clear sense of self or you've been able to develop it, that actually feedback actually is a performance thing. It's not a personal thing. Um, and, and, and taking moments to do it could go into feedback forever in terms mm. of we often ask feedback and people don't know how to give it regularly in business because they're not used to it and they don't go through a process of actually improving their own ability to give feedback mm. um, because it almost becomes a, a close off of our world. Um, performance conversations, which is all associated with that. Um, motivation and commitment to change. That coming out that in sport it this is where it is clear or it can be clear you'll be off the team you'll be out because it's clear how do we create that in a business sense and have more of those conversations up front to create that understanding of the performance so there can be a motivation and a commitment to change to improve um, purpose values um, time on the plan and how it's purpose and values are different to a goal of winning you know, that came out really clearly from what you were saying there. Uh, this whole issue of role. You talked about your functional role early on in the conversation, which was I'm a forward um, and my role is to, to share the ball. My role is to create space, my role. And 
Not that you score many goals with that, but that's your functional role. And we see this in teams. So that's your role in the team, but you also have this role for the team that you spoke about a lot in terms of being this critical friend, being someone who's there. And, and actually that's one of the major things it sounds like you've taken into the rest of your, your career and what you do now. To, same skills, same. It, it's not just what you were as a hockey player. It's this is how I went about it and this is how I take this into the rest of my life, wherever I am and whatever I'm doing. That just gave me tingles. Um, and this other thing about behaviours, the same people and performance improvement. And so often it's talked about in business to us as talent. They're not talented. They haven't, there's a talent issue here. And the, the, the really clear example that you gave there um, about the hard conversation that it helped the performance improvement. It's like, it's not about talent always, guys. It's actually about the environment we create and behaviours that we expect and putting that into practice and having the conversations about that. So as I said, I could go on forever because <laughs> um, it's so rich and so dense in such amazing lessons to be learned that cross between sport and business. Yeah. I, I think the, the big thing for me was um, that you basically perform at the level, level of your training uh, and that really stood out for me that... that you are what you do day in, day out. Uh, and again, we see it in sport and business that there's this expectation of on the day it will be fine and I will rise to the level of expectation and all that kind of, I was about to swear there, but all of that kind of, you know, uh, prejudgment and pre-thinking that adrenaline will, will see you through. And uh, it is remarkable to hear just actually, no, it's not like that at all. Um, Hannah, thank you so much for that insight. It's been fascinating. We'll probably cut that into about seven different podcasts. Um, uh, and thank you, Scott, for your insight today. Uh, thank you all uh, for listening to our latest episode of What Does It Take to Win? Um, uh, it's been a huge privilege to, to hear that. And we look forward to our next podcast when we'll be speaking to elite performers in sport and business and asking them, what does it take to win?